This is Meredith For Real, The Curious Introvert, and I'm Meredith. I explore the questions people think but don't ask out loud, either because they're taboo or thanks to cultural hypnosis. My mission, and yours if you choose to accept it, is to inspire curiosity by exploring the nuance and paradox of our world. Each episode is different, so bring your ADD and your earbuds and have a look around. Hey, Curiositors, it's me, Meredith. Over the years of this show, I've done a handful of episodes about sexuality. And uh, today, I picked some clips from some of my favorites, each five to seven minutes long, to make this sexuality and society mixtape just for you. My guests and I cover the legitimacy of sex addiction, why we tend to exclude people with disabilities from sexual anything, the pressure of purity culture versus the problem of modern dating, antique vibrators, and how the Kama Sutra helps make for a peaceful society. It's a good one. If you end up liking the mixtape style of episode, you might also like episode 176, which is a health and wellness mixtape. And um, and hey, I, I want to thank you for pressing play today. Active curiosity is an essential quality for a healthy society. I try to do my part by bringing you content not regularly served up by the internet algorithms, and I'm so grateful that people like you are consuming this type of content and hopefully leading with curiosity in your real life. And if you're new here, Welcome. Around here, we press play to get curious, disrupt that algorithm, and grow into better humans. We talk about everything from robots to relationships, so bring your ADD and your earbuds and have a look around. There's no specific order to listen to episodes. This clip is about sex addiction. Is it legit? And why are so many people so quick to diagnose themselves? It's with addiction researcher Dr. Josh Grubbs from episode 174. Kanye West, right? Are we even having a conversation about mental health if he doesn't get brought up? Right. (laughs) He said quite a few years ago that he had a sex addiction. And so this brings up, Another thought regarding that. Is it possible that for, let's just say, someone with bipolar disorder, not sure if that's his deal, but let's just say someone who has bipolar disorder and has huge swings of ups and downs and unsafe behavior, sexual exploits maybe is a part of that sexual behavior. Wouldn't it be inaccurate to diagnose them as a sex addict because that is an acute symptom of a bigger problem. Right. So hypersexual behavior is a very common feature of bipolar disorder. It's not even rare. Like that is is one of the things that as a therapist we look for, you know, have you had those swings where you were excessively sexual? Um, and um, that is a rule out for diagnosing compulsive sexual behavior disorder or for any of the other previous ideas around the diagnosis, because at that point it is a symptom. It's the same way of saying we wouldn't say that the person that went on a shopping spree and went $30,000 in debt while they were manic was dealing with compulsive shopping behavior all the time. We would say, well, they were manic and they made a decision when they were manic. So if the excessive sexual behavior is only occurring in the presence of a manic episode of that upswing of bipolar, it is not considered CSPD. It's considered, you know, compulsive sexual behavior secondary to a bi- bipolar episode. Okay, interesting. Um, and what about OCD? Because 
um, people who hyper-focus or obsess, as the name implies, they would obsess in behaviors like we all think of hand-washing for some Mm -hmm. reason. For some reason, that's like the first example we all think of. But but certainly, we wouldn't call that like a hand-washing addict. It would be Mm -hmm. a symptom of OCD. Is OCD kind of in that realm with sex addicts, or is that a completely separate thing because sex addiction is so specialized and large, it deserves its own diagnosis? So... That would depend on which scientist you were talking about. Some scientists do (laughs) subscribe to the notion that sex addiction is in the same constellation as obsessive compulsive um, disorders are, and that it's a type of of obsessive mental fixation and the compulsion is the sexual behavior. And then I'm kind of on the outside of saying, well, these are all interesting models. Um, I don't know which one's right. I'm more interested in why people think they have a sex addiction than I am on how we accurately classify the exact, you know, features of the disorder, so to speak. And why is it more common with sex addiction for people to prefer to self-report themselves as a sex addict than say something else, like a, a, right. just a cheater? Right. Well, so I mean, there's, there's a lot of reasons that I think that that could come up. I mean, one of the really fascinating things about compulsive sexual behavior disorder, about sex addiction, if you will, is that it may be the only addiction where people show up to therapy saying they think they have this, and then it's the therapist's job to decide whether or not they actually do. And what I mean by that is, I, I can't recall ever working with a client that says, well, I think I have an opioid addiction, and then they come in and it turns out they don't use opioids. Or come in and say, well, I think I might be an alcoholic. And then you ask them, you know, when do they drink? And they're like, well, I drink, you know, once a month and I have two drinks at that point in time. Right. That's not a scenario we see. But with sex addiction, we have people coming in and saying it with some regularity. And sometimes it's in response to being caught in an affair. Sometimes it's in response to a spouse or or girlfriend or or boyfriend, in some cases, catching them viewing porn regularly. Um, In some cases, it's not in response to anything. But when you get into the nitty gritty of the sexual behavior, it's infrequent. Um, it's, uh, relatively normal. Um, and it doesn't seem to be interfering with their life other than the, the mental energy and emotional energy they're spending on it. And what we find is, is that sex in particular is wrapped up in, in people's sense of morality. And as it turns out, when you're doing something that violates what your moral foundations are, what your moral kind of code is, that creates feelings of the term we use is incongruence. There's this misalignment of like what you believe is right and what you should be doing and what you're actually doing. And that disconnect, that dissonance leads people to feel guilt and shame and kind of just torn up inside for lack of a better words. And they often interpret it as an addiction. And so it's often easier to say, well, I must have an addiction because I keep doing this thing that I believe is morally wrong than it is to say, maybe my beliefs about this are unrealistically strict. This clip is about sex as a human right and why society at large tends to view people with disabilities as excluded from sexual desires. The guest is the owner of Sensual Solutions, an intimate care service in Canada, facilitating medically assisted sex for people with disabilities. This is Trish St. John from episode 158. I notice a group of people who are being marginalized and 
sex seemed to be the biggest area that they were marginalized in. I have friends with disabilities. I dated a man with a disability who, by the way, was very excellent uh, with his hands, <laughs> with his mouth, everything. And that kind of got me going. I thought, wow, this guy has reinvented himself. And uh, he was just a fantastic partner to uh, have an experience with. Uh, and so I kind of look at it like that, that like sex was missing in my life for a long time. Uh, so I can't imagine what it would be like for people with disabilities, that community, whether you're trying to date or get married and have children. And what surprised you the most after you started your business? There's always, for every business owner, I feel like there's the story, like the one you just shared, and then there's the in the trenches of actually starting it. Right. Uh, what was the most surprising probably was that um, how popular it was, how needed it was, and how uh, in my first week of business, I received a phone call from a major rehab hospital here in Vancouver um, to come and meet with them to find out what kind of resources I had and what my plan was. And they were so positive and so helpful. You know, popularity, unfortunately, kind of lends to credibility to yeah. fringe things. But are they really fringe? And it's not fringe to be a sexual being. But for some reason, we put people with disabilities on the outside of that scope. What's the reason for that? Why do you think that it's so uncomfortable for so many people to think of someone, for example, again, with a spinal cord injury to be having sex? Well, I think it's fear and I think it's ignorance. So for people who don't understand the disabled community, um, they're not going to even have this on their radar that people with disabilities have brains and have nerves and have feelings and have dreams and hormones and uh, desires and wants just like anybody else. I also think that uh, the able-bodied community, the way that people with disabilities have been raised uh, and how they've been treated as we grow older into adulthood, the, uh, the whole area of treating people with disabilities almost like children, where uh, they are looked after to the point that uh, I believe the term is uh, infanticized, where we think of them as uh, infants and that they're in total need, uh, which may be true for some, that their needs are great. However, they still are human beings. And therefore, from that point alone, they have desires, wants, hormones, all of the stuff that anybody else does. I'm trying to think of uh, put myself in the mental state of somebody who might have an argument against this. Um, and I'm sure you can share with me any, you know, pushback that you've received from your community. But the only thing that I can think of is someone might say, doesn't someone with XY disability have more important things to worry about? How would you respond to that? Uh, well, according to you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs after uh, shelter, food and water and shelter, it's basically love and sex. So uh, 
I don't know how anybody would want to to say that somebody would have something else on their mind besides that. I guess what that tells me is that there's still that ableist view that someone with a disability really shouldn't even be thinking about it because it's just going to be inconvenient for everyone. Mm. Um, so that's how I kind of see it. Oh, that's interesting that it that it goes into inconvenience. That yes. That is not something I considered. This has been really interesting. I, I hope that this helps expand people's uh, feelings about, you know, or helps them be more honest about their feelings. I think that's where true transformation takes place. It's not just saying the right thing or being politically correct, but really having a change of heart. And I love that you were open and you shared that you had a relationship with a man with a disability and that really changed your mind about things. And, you know, we're a bit of a late bloomer and and all of that fits and puts the puzzle pieces together to paint the picture of your motives and who you are. So thank you for sharing that. And I hope that our listeners can, you know, come to an honest place about how they think about others with disabilities having sex and, uh, and that there, there really is more, you know, inclusivity in that department. Any final thoughts before we close? People with disabilities get horny too. This clip is about dating and abstinence through the lens of the evangelical church in the late 1990s. My guest is the author of I Kiss Dating Goodbye, Joshua Harris, from episode 156. And then I would just say there are so many hangups in, in, in so many religious contexts about sex. It be, it's become such a massive deal. And then it's been reinforced, you know, as a, as a kind of key part of the culture wars and so on. So there's just incredible pressure. And I think that pressure leads to uh, real problems, problems in the way we relate, problems in the way we even approach sexuality and experience sexuality. So uh, I've, I've really interacted with so many couples that have that kind of story, that their sex life is really marred by the guilt that they felt for so long around sex, holding off all those desires and then getting married and suddenly they're supposed to just turn on and turn themselves on sexually and be completely open and comfortable. And, and that's really a difficult thing to do because your mind has been programmed. This is such a bad thing. It's so terrible. You know, the joke is sex is such a terrible, you know, dirty, nasty thing. You should save it for the one you love. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't heard that. That's good. Yeah. That's really good. Oh my gosh. And when you said it puts so much pressure on them. Let's be real by them. We mean her because I don't know what your experience was, but my experience in my community was it was definitely the woman's job to dress modestly, swim in a t-shirt and shorts, um, and, and really protect the man's purity because boys will be boys. And then when you got married, Mm -hmm. it was like you were expecting to also carry the burden of sexual satisfaction and be some sort of, you know, super sexual, awesome, knowledgeable person. But we weren't even allowed to masturbate. Like there was no discussion of education, no discussion of pleasure. Mm. And you're absolutely right about um, the, you know, getting married too soon. I even knew someone and they're still married amazingly, but they married Mm. in high school. They were children because their Mm -hmm. parents didn't want them to have sex before they got married. But for most of us from my community, we are not married to the person that we Mm. first got married to like that first Mm. marriage. Um, either they're 
married and maybe it's not the right fit and they're struggling and they're unhappy mm-hmm. and or they parted ways. There are parts of dating that are quite broken today. I think there's a lot of frustration about it. And I think you will, I think my book was one expression of trying to find a saner, healthier way to approach that. Now, the problem with my approach, it was very control-based. It was very, you know, guilt-based and shame-based and so on. But I, I really think it's important, you know, from my own standpoint, I want people to have the freedom to do whatever they want. You know, if there are people who say, I want a very restrictive, you know, my family is involved in who I marry, you know, kind of experience of courtship, you know, more power to you. What's important to me is that people are making that decision themselves. It's not being forced on them from anyone else. The same goes with online dating. It's like, if you're enjoying that, you're having lots of different sexual experiences and you're having a great time, wonderful, you know, but I hope that's not because there's this pressure from all your friends that you have to be doing this, you know, I just want to encourage people to be free to know what they want themselves, um, to be making decisions that are informed by what's best for them and what they kind of feel good about in the way that they're relating to other people. So I, I think that, uh, you know, I guess dating goodbye was trying to ask some questions. I think the answers that it came up with were wrong, but I think every generation is going to keep having to ask those questions. And as we lose like a community-based support system as we lose the ability to get to know others in contexts that are supported by family and extended community and so on, I think a lot of people feel quite alone and quite frustrated and maybe even scared a little bit by the, the whole process. And so I, I worry at times that, you know, the ideas that I keep stating goodbye will be recycled by someone new. Um, I'm almost positive that's going to happen. But yeah. it's because there's there's a lot of frustration when it comes to finding a finding a partner, especially in a culture that's quite liberated sexually and so on. So much frustration. I had some very interesting conversations as part of my research for our discussion. Did you really? I really did. And, you know, I can tell like some of them were, I was just like asking, I had like three questions I pulled the audience with. Mm. um, And some of them just answered the questions. And then others, they were like, actually, I really want to dig into this. Can we have a Zoom call? And I'm like, yeah, I haven't talked to you in 20 (laughs) years. Let's do that. And and it was like therapy for us. I love that you say deciding what you want. And for me, that's so key because that's the difference. Because for us, for the ladies of uh, my community, it wasn't about like, let me just be a little TMI for a minute. There were women in my community who didn't use tampons because they felt like Mm. that it would diminish their virginal qualities. Yeah. And so, and that wasn't because they had biological, you know, anatomical information about you know, virginal qualities, clearly it was about, it was like, um, it was like a spell. Like if I'm really pure, if I don't hold Mm -hmm. hands, if I don't kiss, if I don't think about sex, if I don't masturbate, then Mm -hmm. I have created the perfect, um, formula that will equal happiness. There was definitely no discussion about like, you know, I will have a good sex life. That wasn't even a part, surprisingly, mm. I think that maybe got taught on the dude side, but on the girl side, it was about, I will be happy. I will be safe. 
I will be like all the things that you would want from a marriage will happen. And so it Mm -hmm. obviously created a lot of disappointments because that has nothing to do with anything. Um, So I love the the idea of sitting with yourself and deciding what Mm -hmm. you want, whether it is in this Mm -hmm. more traditional tender online app dating format, or if it has some elements of traditional uh, courtship. Mm-hmm. So I think that's, mm-hmm. that's really powerful. Well, it's, it's so tied to the family context, right? Like as you're talking about it, you know, the experience of a late twenties single or, you know, a mid forties single after a divorce or whatever is completely different than the teenager who is making decisions for the first time, you know, whose parents, you know, care about them, want to protect them from real life consequences that can come from the decisions that are made when it comes to sexuality at this age, you know, at that age, that kind of thing. So even as I look back, like I kissed dating goodbye was targeting teenagers. I was, I had just gone through the teen years myself. I was writing to try to inspire teens and the reasons those very restrictive ideas were so embraced is because there was a whole generation of parents in particular and youth pastors that were wanting to protect their kids from premarital sex because that would lead to, you know, unwanted pregnancies and possibly abortion and AIDS and other sexually transmitted diseases. You know, like that was like, that was the focus of that, that era. And um, so the, the answer was control. We're going to take a quick pause on the show to share about some businesses I think you should know about and a cool podcast I think you'll like. When we come back, you'll hear about the strange history of vibrators in the U.S. and their real purpose behind the Kama Sutra. Have you ever wondered what it's like to be buried in an avalanche? Weird foreign feeling of despair. Or how it feels to crash a skydive? I remember feeling my body hit the ground. These are the stories you'll hear on the podcast called What Was That Like? True stories told by the actual person who went through it. And you'll hear actual 911 calls. 911, there's a man at my back door trying to get in. Search for What Was That Like on any podcast app or at whatwasthatlike.com. If you ever wonder where I find guests for the show, the answer is it varies a lot. And since it's something that gets asked a lot, I started including the backstory of each episode in my Monday emails. And then on Saturday, I share cliff notes and clickable links in case what you heard was so good, you wish you could have taken notes. If you want to be included, text REAL to 66866 if you're in the US or go to MeredithForReal.com if you're elsewhere. If you're listening north of the state of Georgia, mosquitoes are not top of mind right now. But if you're in the Florida panhandle or Gulf Coast of Alabama, you're already dusting off your grill and citronella candles. Make life easy for future you and get your property scheduled for a mosquito treatment with Insect. I've been using them since 2019 and they continue to impress me. They guarantee their work and pollinators are always top of mind. Check them out at ensec.net. If you watch the show on YouTube, then you see the beautiful backdrop of Trader John's, the exhibit where I record the show inside the Pensacola Museum of History. This is just one museum under the umbrella of the UWF Historic Trust. If you're planning a trip to Pensacola and need an indoor activity option, pick up a ticket. It's good for a whole week. Get your tickets in person so you can show the agent one of my emails and get $2 off an adult ticket. Now back to the show. Remember to stay till the end where I give you a sneak peek of next week's episode. 
This clip is about the strange history of vibrators in America, sex education, and the stigma around self-pleasure. The guest is Dr. Carol Queen from episode 125, a sexologist and curator of the Antique Vibrator Museum in San Francisco, California. Some people out there may not have ever used a vibrator. The, the, the sensation is essentially a kind of a buzz. Right. It's some some vibrators would feel nothing like a papyrus box or a gourd full of bees. But the, the vibration that the bees would generate is a vibration. So it's a, it's a it's a variant. There is, in fact, a, a physiological reason that we might like this kind of, you know, whether it's bees, whether it's I, I choose vibrators personally. I, I want to leave the bees to do their good work in the world. But uh, we have nerves that reach from our brain down our spine to our genitals that can feel, the nerves are specialized to feel vibration. And we ask ourselves, why, why, why would we have vibes? Or why don't we have nerves feel vibration? I don't actually know the answer to that. Did it have to do with herds of early buffalo running across the savanna and people feeling the vibration in their body? I don't know. But it's great that they're there because that's the that's the real reason that people have turned to vibrators as a fun and pleasure filled experience uh, for genital sensation and not just an awesome invention for your uh, tennis elbow. By 1917, uh, vibrators, electric vibrators for individual consumption are the commonest electrified appliance in American households, more so than the electric toaster. Interesting. Okay. So what what, what does it say about the attitudes towards sex and really the quality of sex that people were having prior, I don't know, just back then yeah. that they didn't know what a female orgasm looked like and that I mean, were, was sex that bad for these ladies that, do you see where I'm going with this? I don't even know how to word this no, question. No, I do. But I, <laughs> let me just cut to the chase and say, uh, often I, it probably was that super sad. But remember, it's that bad for some people now Aww. because I'm going to put my sexologist hat right back on here. Not just a, not just a hoarder of old vibrators. I, I went to school to think about these things and, uh, what I want to share is if you don't get good sex education, if you don't have access to it, if you if you have access to pop culture level sexuality, you may not, in fact, get enough information about pleasure functioning and and you may not know who to trust right out in the wilds of the interwebs. So that's a challenge. It's a, it's a wheat from the chaff challenge now is it used to be, there just isn't enough information and you had to, you know, you had to bust into a university library to get most of it right now. It's, it's sort of totally the opposite. And yet people don't necessarily come out of it with uh, enough understanding to, to function the way that they wish they could, that they believe they ought to be able to, I'm sure they're connected, but how connected are the stigmas around vibrator use and masturbation? Do you think they're completely connected? Are they related? Are they cousins? 
certainly think they're at least cousins. No, I think they're I think they're siblings. I think there is stigma around masturbation, regardless of how it's done. And that stigma lives really adjacent to this normative idea that if you're going to have sex, it should be with a person. (laughs) Um, Someone you love, someone you're committed to, someone you're married to, depending on who you ask, right? That's a, that's a moving target, but the, but the underlying normativity is this is to share with someone. And um, if you don't, you can't get someone to do that with you. And you know, that's ridiculous because many people can in fact find people to do something with them and they still don't necessarily have an orgasm and vibrators are designed to stimulate without all of the other things going on that happen during partner sex, much of which is wonderful distraction, wouldn't trade it for the world, but it's not the same activity as masturbation. It's, it too is related, but it's not the same thing. So, so even that is, is, is knitted into this idea that there's a particular kind of way to be a sexual person. This clip is about looking at sex outside the traditional Western lens, the impact good sex has on society, and the real purpose of the Kama Sutra. My guest is an Indian-American sex educator raised in the American South and living in Northern India. She is Sheetal Kandola from Episode 70. You wrote in an article that sex isn't sexuality isn't just about sex. Can you explain what you meant by that a little? Yeah, so sexuality, um, and if you look in the ancient texts like the Kama Sutra, um, sex is just, sex is the physical act. And any two beings, you know, can have sex. But the Kama Sutra is really about pleasure. And not everyone, or basically the human mind, can really only understand what pleasure is. Um, And be able to work towards um, creating pleasure. Um, And sexuality is also about, it's about pleasure. It's about seduction. It's about desire. And this is what sex is about. Sex is our highest form of energy is what Tantra says. Um, Another philosophy that um, is, is kind of misconstrued in the West, but Tantra is basically a philosophy that kind of encourages people to embrace everything. Um, don't deny anything. Don't deny, um, you know, sex. Um, don't deny your sin. Don't deny the darker side of yourself. So sexuality is a, a very encompassing topic that um, really, really, I think if you get to the core of it, what we're all seeking when you're looking for good sex, is not really good sex. It's pleasure, good pleasure, good intimacy. Well, you mentioned the Kama Sutra. The Kama Sutra in the West has a lot to do with Cosmopolitan magazine. So (laughs) can you explain the difference between the Kama Sutra in the Indian writings versus what most of us picked up in eighth grade? Yeah. So in the West, um, (laughs) they, they consider Kama Sutra just about these positions. And like I mentioned earlier, the Kama Sutra is not focused on positions. The positions are also a very, very small part of what the Kama Sutra has to offer. Um, now, like I said, the Kama Sutra was written 380, you know, thousands of years ago. Um, and the Kama Sutra is, is about pleasure. It was actually written for, for a woman, for teaching a man how to pleasure a woman. And there's so many, like so many different, um, 
so many different so many different versions of the Kama Sutra because each time a king came into his kingdom, um, the Kama Sutra was commissioned because they believed um, that if two two couples or if two people were able to reach their um, find pleasure in their physical intimacy, um, if those if that couple was happy, that meant society would be stable. And if society was stable, that meant the kingdom would be stable. So their whole life was based on people finding their pleasure and their happiness within the relationships, which would obviously ripple out into the kingdom. Um, and so the Kama Sutra is a very, very powerful text. And it has a lots, lots of offerings and lots of knowledge on how to, um, I don't like the word seduce, but... Um, I guess, yeah, I guess seduce is the only word I'm limited to, seduce a lover, how to, um, how to, the Kama Sutra is basically focused on um, refinement and beauty and enchantment and making love and having pleasure. And, you know, in the West, it's very much degraded to like, oh, you need to do like this position to like get this. And like, it's very much like physical goal oriented, physical goal oriented, which is what it's not at all. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like our industrial revolution also had an effect on our attitudes on sex. But what you just said about, you know, when you're happy in your sexuality and you're ha- like when couples are happy with one another and they're experiencing intimacy on all levels, how that really does make society better. Like I just got goosebumps because that's so true and we don't always uh, value it in that way and we definitely have um almost, yeah, like, um, I don't know, like, yeah, an industrial attitude. Like, you know, if you pull it down the assembly line and then you, you know, push these three buttons, then you get what you want out of it. I don't know. It's not as like, I, I, I mean, I'm not in every American household, but I'm going to go out there and say that this is not a normal, typical approach for Americans to view sexuality, but I love it. I love the um, interruption of our thoughts about what we have always perceived as typical. Thanks for listening. Did you think of someone you know while you listened? Help me grow the show by sharing this episode with that person. And if you liked this mixtape style of episode, you might also like the health and wellness mixtape. It's episode 176. Stay tuned next week when I talk with a mom for hire.